morning. Welcome to Rogue Grace on this chillier Thursday morning as fall is beginning to set in. I like the changing of the seasons. This is Peter John. Grateful to be able to receive and to give a daily dose of good news. We are going through the book of Hebrews day by day, and we find ourselves beginning a new chapter this morning. So if you're following along, it's Hebrews chapter 3. And to put again everything back into its context, remember that this is written to Hebrews. Interestingly enough, a group of Christians who were also Hebrews, they were also Jewish in their ancestry and in their descent. And so they were vacillating between their found faith in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the law in totality but also with the uh, familiarity and the security of their past faith and their interaction with Judaism and what is now called the Old Covenant in the Bible. And so, maybe because the early church still maintained somewhat of a relationship with the activity of the temple. As we read in the book of Acts that Peter and John went in the hours prescribed at the temple to pray. Or of Paul desiring to fulfill various rites and keep various feasts, that there was this pull that was very subtle. And so the writer of Hebrews, perhaps Paul, says in chapter 2, beware of drifting back out from the finished work of the cross and underneath, once again, the laws and precepts of the Old Covenant. I like that he uses the term drifting because that's usually how it goes down. We find ourselves in various times so excited about God's beautiful grace the grace he's extended to us, unmerited favor. Learning about what it means to be robed in Christ. That that's my identity. And what it means that Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God the Father. But as time goes on, as Martin Luther rightly said, the the default mode of the human heart is self-righteousness. 
we begin to want to also contribute to our righteousness and to our identity in Christ. So that very subtly, either we or others around us, we want them to look at how amazing of a person we have become. (laughs) Isn't that what our flesh wants? And so we begin to drift back into this old covenant in which it's no longer all the promises of God are yes and amen, as 1 Corinthians says, but they become if and then. If I do this, then God will do that. I have found that when I begin to think along those lines, I get frustrated with God. He no longer is as mysterious and magnificent in his ways, where I say, who can know the mind of the Lord, that he would allow this to happen to me, or why I go through this, or why this happens in the world. But I begin to get frustrated. My flesh gets irritated because I begin to think to myself, well, I did my part. So why hasn't God done his part? And instead of venerating and extolling God, that old covenant mentality begins to become irritated with God. That's why it's imperative that we stay within the tenets of the new covenant by which we recognize it is grace in those times we're strong and it is grace in those times we're weak. And when we are blessed, it's by his grace. And when we're hurt or suffering, he sustains us. His grace is enough. To me, nothing exalts God more than a grace-minded mentality of a Christian who recognizes any good thing will be because of God and Jesus Christ alone. I think that that is actually a mature way to approach your relationship with God. Although the world or the church or the devil even might come along and say that's immature, it's actually counterintuitive. That's why it feels immature that I recognize if I am doing well, it's God's grace. If I'm not doing well, his grace is sufficient. And those things I'm not doing well... I stand by grace alone. And in all of those things, I know I am saved, made righteous, and am blessed by His grace. That is actually, contrary to what our natural tendency may be, the most mature place to be in when it comes to your walk with God. To become like a child. That's how you inherit the kingdom 
of God. Our kids are, are, the younger they are even, the more, uh, the more ability they have to accept and to receive things that are completely disconnected from their behavior or what they have demonstrated to be worthy of. Or in order to create their own identity, they reject. That comes along later. In those early years, you give your kids a present for their birthday. And they just accept it. No questions asked. Because it's almost as though it's a sense of entitlement that Jesus is pointing to. And it's not in a bad way. It's that he wants us to be like kids are in their innocence with their parents, where when they get a birthday present, they, they'll, they'll, they'll hopefully say thank you, if you're lucky. But there is a sense of entitlement of, well, I am your child after all. <laughs> That's why there's dinner every night on the table or my school supplies are in my backpack. Because after all, I am your child. Now, we try to teach them to reciprocate by saying thank you and being thoughtful and polite for their own sakes. But it's not until someone is older that the idea of having to demonstrate one is worthy begins to creep in. To forge your own path, to create your own identity. And so even as it is in our growing up physically, so too spiritually, the more mature you are, the more you're able to say, I just want to receive from God. To become as a child, it's like reverse, as Jesus teaches us. I'm so glad that Jesus is constantly referring to that of a child and not that of a politician or of a scribe as one who is to be the um, center or the example of what it means to grow in the kingdom. So these Christians, I think probably, were subtly being pulled back into the familiarity and the security of the years and years that they had before they became Christians. With all of the the laws of Moses, with the feasts and the sacrifices, and it probably got, the breaking point was, when they started coming to the temple with sacrifices once again. I think that, in my opinion, that became the threshing point, the, the breaking point. 
it hit critical mass at that point to cause the writer of Hebrews to have to address the situation. That these who were Christians who had for months, years, been able to worship God apart from the activities of the temple sacrifices and feasts. Well, perhaps they one thing led to another and they're keeping the feasts, okay. But then when it comes to sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews in a few chapters is going to have some very strong words about those who are trying to once again offer sacrifices to God. You see, there are no more sacrifices to be made. Not for you to be blessed, to be righteous, to be accepted by God. And so, that's kind of the reset, if you would, to our text here in Hebrews chapter 3, and verse 1, which we'll get to right after this. My heart is overjoyed Kingdom has finally come I see the face of my maker The Father, the Son No, I won't walk, I will run I hear the trumpet sound Your wonders all around No one can question
Welcome back. I, I want to uh, restate something as we continue our study in Hebrews. And that would be, remember when the people of Israel were wandering around? Well, even as they, before they were even wandering, as they were just released from out of Pharaoh's grip and the slavery of Egypt. And just on the other side, they were already beginning to lament what they had back in Egypt, which is a picture of the law according to Galatians chapter 3. But it's the under being under the law, under the bondage of the law. It is someone who has not been born again or received the salvation and deliverance that comes from believing that Christ, the greater than Moses, has brought us out from under the bondage of the law. It's, it's this complete status of seeking self-salvation under the taskmasters and the pharaohs of our own works and efforts and disciplines. Well, they kept thinking about what they had back then, wanting to go back, and they never did. Moses never took them back. They never went back. They took 40 years to get to the promised land, but they never did go back into Egypt. I think when we're not in that place of more than enough, which is the promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey, that place of resting in the finished work of the the cross of Jesus Christ, that place of seeing territory not only taken, but taking the territory we already know has been taken in our lives, in our walks, in our minds, in our families. But on the other side of that, uh, on the um, prior to that, in the desert, I think that desert experience, a lot of it has to do with though a person isn't back up under the law completely. They're not under the bondage of self-righteousness, self-justification, totally, as they once were. They, they do want to go back. And the reason that a person wants to go back is because no matter how a person was seeking to be self-righteous, at least they had what they would think was some kind of control, some kind of power to um, dictate their righteousness, to demonstrate their righteousness. And so when, you're, when, you, when you accept the gospel at its core, you have to completely let go of all of that. And that's why it's the narrow road. It takes humility to do so. But when a person loses that sense of just letting go completely, the desert experience is a lot of times 
knowing I'm not completely under the law self-righteously, but I wish I was. And another way of putting it would be, for others, might be, well, I know I'm not all the way back into the world, into Babylon, in order to live for myself or to justify and make a name for myself, but I wish I was. But I'm not, but I wish I was. And there's, that's when you're in that in-between territory, that state of limbo, that desert experience, that 40 years it took the people of Israel to finally work their way through. So the real issue about receiving the saving grace of God through his son Jesus Christ in a way that will be as effective as possible in our everyday lives is an issue of the heart. How can you and I cause our heart to be in that place of total and complete dependence on the phrase that Jesus cried, it is finished. See, that's the real key. I need the Lord to continue to mold and shape my heart. It's a matter of the heart and not just a matter of moralism or outward external discipline. And I guess maybe one of the ways to go about that is to recognize even when I am in the desert and I'm spitting out dust, so to speak, and I'm thinking, I wish I had more of a capacity to demonstrate my own righteousness or to live for myself like I used to. But even when I'm am feeling those, God, you love me just the same. You, 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 your, your love is not at all, at all affected or impacted by my heart. It is so completely unconnected to my behavior because it's all based in the new covenant on what Jesus accomplished. I think just knowing that alone is a huge, not only game, but heart changer. Let's delve into the text right after this song break. Long preserved for our walk 
up where we left off yesterday in our text, here in Hebrews chapter 3, in verse 1 we read, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews 3 verse 1. So, therefore, connects us to the previous thoughts, and that would be chapter 2, in which we read that Jesus is greater than the angels, superior to the angels, and yet chose to become, like us, a little lower than the angels as far as his power, not his divinity, but his power is concerned, so that he might relate to us and redeem us from our sins. That he being tempted is able to suffer in a way that now he understands when we are tempted. But because he did not sin, he destroyed death and took it out of the devil's hand. He destroyed the devil with the devil's own weapon by becoming a little lower than those angels. So that's the therefore. And then it says, holy brothers. And my margin renders it, or brothers and sisters. So there is this special unity that's given to those who trust and believe that Jesus has done this for us. So much so that we're able to call one another brothers and sisters. You see, in the chapter before, we read that Jesus is no longer, or never was, but is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. And that through what he has done, we read that he has made many to become the sons of God, the children of God. So we have this incredible family that transcends even, believe it or not, any kind of family or um, family relationship here on earth. I think of one time when Jesus was teaching And the house was very crowded. And the word came to him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they want you. They're calling for you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers? But those who do the will of God. (laughs) So Jesus was making it clear that there is a higher family unit then even that which is the, the, uh, the strongest, the purest here on earth, which would be our immediate family with your spouse or your parents or your kids. 
And that's what we can have when we understand that Jesus Christ became as one of us to make many in, in, into the children of God. So, I've seen over the years a lot of people, it's been beautiful to watch, who didn't have a really great family unit. They didn't grow up in a good environment. And it's sad. And sometimes when you see that with, let's say, my kids' friends, or kids at their school, and you see some of the situations, you just wonder, how are they ever going to even make it? They already have two strikes against them just on the get-go. And a lot of people have come from that kind of environment or background in this fallen world we live in. But I have found over the years that the church has been a place where people who didn't have a strong family or a loving family were able to find one with the people of God and became their brothers and sisters. And I've also seen a lot of wonderful families, strong, tightly knit families, come to the church as a family and contribute and were able to even, it's a beautiful thing to watch, a, a tight-knit, healthy family bless others and include others in on their own family. That's an incredible thing. And so, this thing called the kingdom is also called a family. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us of that when he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Isn't that great? We share in something common. We have a unity. And that is, we are not of this world. We are citizens of another kingdom. A heavenly calling. It says, Now, you holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's one of the great themes, or even, I would say more accurately, one of the great mantras of the book of Hebrews. Consider Jesus. It says that here. Later it'll say, looking unto Jesus, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. It says that on several occasions in the book of Hebrews. To consider Jesus. And the writer is reminding these who were thinking that the new covenant is good, but they were drifting back to the old to consider Jesus. As beautiful and powerful as those sacrifices may be or seem to be, consider Jesus. That's what he's saying. And the same is true for you. As good as it might be to compensate for your flaws by demonstrating your faithfulness in one way or another, or 
as right as it may seem to demonstrate to God that you are worthy of being blessed by your own efforts or the checklist that you can possibly present to him at the end of the week. As good or right as those things may feel or seem to be, consider Jesus. Consider what the finished work of the cross says to you and me. Consider how much better it is than anything we could ever do. No matter how many things you do, sins you uh, resist, it will never be, not even come close to, being as beautiful and as perfect as the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. That he lived a life flawlessly, yet was tempted daily, just like you. So that when he died, he could die not just for his sin, which he had none, but for your sin and also relate to you. Bringing you into a family of brothers and sisters who share the same heavenly calling. And so if you find yourself drifting back to self-righteousness or you, you find yourself frustrated because you don't feel you're righteous enough, consider Jesus, that his righteousness is more than enough. That what he accomplished is something you could never have. And God knew that, and that's why he sent his only begotten son. When you think, perhaps, man, I should make more sacrifices in order to make up for what I didn't get accomplished, consider Jesus. I'm not saying don't live for the Lord or serve the Lord and live and serve other people. I'm not saying that. But if you're doing those things, even in the back of your mind, to prove that you're a good Christian or to demonstrate to yourself that you're a good Christian or somehow get in some kind of good grace with God for blessing and answered prayer. I want you to do this. Consider Jesus. What he has done, you can never match it can't top it. It's the best. Consider Jesus. We'll be right back. It's nice to be at peace with you. It's fine with me to be close to you. Attracted to the 
things of this world And I used to be at war with you Now I'm fighting on your side It's nice to be simply appreciate and admire the Lord Jesus. We may not, or we may, realize it, but that is faith. Just the ability to appreciate him is faith. Because then you have the ability to receive from him. The ability to expect from him. And that's why people were healed on the basis of their faith when he was here on earth. And so that's why I'm grateful for this book of Hebrews, that we can continue to, as we just read, consider Jesus. Why he is greater, better, superior. 
Because when you do that, without even perhaps being aware, your own faith is being expanded. And when your faith is expanded, your hope is expanded. You have the ability to expect. And when you expect from God, God will always not only meet those expectations, but to exceedingly abundantly above them. As you consider Jesus, as we have this program, may you be filled with the expectation of his blessing. That he is going to guard your path, guide your way. That those things that you're carrying, you don't have to. You really don't. Jesus says, look at the, the lilies on the hillside. They're not toiling. They're not sowing. They're not dyeing their robes and their clothes. Yet they're, they're clothed in more brilliance than Solomon in his heyday. And Jesus was saying, just trust in the Father. And that's why we get to be blessed in looking at Jesus, because it shows us the nature of the Father and how much the Father loves us too. May you be blessed this rest of the day. I'll be back on at 3 o'clock. As we continue to look at Hebrews chapter 3, we'll be in verse 2, Lord willing. May you grow in grace that's right grow grow in your love and your faithfulness grow in your virtue in your purity and in your holiness and the way you do that is by growing in grace praise be to the Lord for that talk to you soon